0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 3rd, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 1st, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,111, that's 16111. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,112, that's 16112. This morning, A Vision for You presents New Year's Ask It Basket. We come to this program as a result of the constant pain frustration, utter defeat, and complete despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We begin to realize that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our effort, philosophies, goals, good intentions or New Year's resolutions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. We cannot solve this problem by ourselves. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. Sufficient. Our situation truly seems hopeless. The secret of the 12 steps is that In spite of all odds, it is possible to be able to effectuate such dramatic change, a transformation in personality, a transformation in character, a transformation in values. We are restored to sanity. A new vision comes into view. Our problem was powerlessness. And as a result of the program of recovery, we are given power. Our problem was isolation, and we are given fellowship and community. Before recovery, we had been subjected to a vicious cycle of personal self-destruction. With recovery and the implementation of the 12 steps, we have been granted a spiritual journey of transformation and rebirth. Joining us this morning is Harlan G, a recovered compulsive overeater from Arizona. Harlan is dedicated to the 12-step way of life and enthusiastically carrying the great news of the program of recovery. And it's with tremendous appreciation I welcome a beloved visionary Harlan G.
1: Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leia. Thank you. I love you too, and I'm so glad to be here. And uh, well, we made it, guys. It's January 3rd, 2021, so we made it through 2020, and I hope everybody had a happy New Year. I'm so glad to be here this morning. It's an honor to be of service to a vision for you. It's an honor to be of service to to OA. Um, I am Harlan G. As Leia said, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And from the time I was a little, little child, I have been a compulsive overeater. Food and weight have taken a very unnatural position in my life from day one. I have memories, and I've said this before on this line many times, I have vivid memories of being very young child two three four years old five years old and people would scream at my mother and father about how fat i was getting and how much food i was eating and and it was just a very tumultuous situation and what happened in my life was my my mother and father fought constantly. My mother and father were at each other's throats from the moment they woke up till the moment they went to sleep. But there was one time in a day when they would have an armistice, and the one time when the when the battle of the bulge would subside for a minute or two would be when they would cry about what they what are they going to do about my weight and what are they going to do about how how much I was eating and so on and so forth and this was a source of great shame for me because as I went out into the world I didn't look like the other kids I was fatter than the other kids and I have vivid memories of being a kid five six seven years old and people would scream at me and people would yell at me adults would yell at me and and that and they would say the same thing no matter who they were and what they would say to me is You are no good because you're fat. They wouldn't say it in those words. Those are not the words that they used. They would use words like fat boys don't get girlfriends, fat boys don't get good jobs, fat boys don't get in good colleges, fat boys don't have successful lives. And what they didn't really know about me at all was, I was doing the best I could to acquiesce to their demands. I was doing the very best that I could to glom on to what they were telling me. And what they were telling me is, don't eat so much you'll feel better. And when I didn't eat so much, I did feel better. I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt jealousy better. I felt my own inadequacies better. And as those feelings would burst to the surface inside me like Roman candles on the 4th of July, the only thing my little brain knew to excuse me alleviate the pain was to eat the very food that I knew was damning me to this fate of being a fat kid. And as I ate the food, the relief would come, but unfortunately it wouldn't last very long. It would only last for about 10 seconds. But my brain was totally focused in on that sense of ease and comfort that came very, very instantly when I would eat the food. And I have memories of dieting down but I just couldn't do it for very long. It's like asking yourself, how long can you hold your breath underwater? Not long. And when I was nine years old, I was put on heavy-duty amphetamines by the doctor. I have a memory. Uh, we would go to the doctor, uh, Dr. Jacobson on Devon Avenue in Chicago. I'm born and raised in Chicago. If you don't know, I am born and raised in Chicago, but I now live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Scottsdale is like a western suburb of Chicago, for crying out loud, because you you can't go very far here without running into somebody that's from Chicago. But anyway, that aside, I went to the the doctor and the doctor was screaming at my mother in Yiddish and my mother was screaming at him in Yiddish and by the time I left there I was on heavy-duty diet pills and I remember being nine years old and the temples of my head just banging and banging and banging from these pills and you sleep about 15-20 minutes a month but you don't eat. But when you crash down on those pills, when you, when you come down the roller coaster is the only way I can use to describe it. If you've ever been on these pills, it really is like a roller coaster kind of ride. But when you come down, you just, you eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin, but I did lose weight, but unfortunately, it made me into a crazy person, a crazier person. I was already a crazy person, but it made me into a crazier person. You know, I'm, a, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I found myself getting into fistfights at school. I found myself not able to really pay attention to anything that the teacher was saying or anyone was saying. I couldn't even listen to people I, I would I get accused of this now, uh, I would say the same thing like a million times in a row, and it, it just wasn't a good situation and Then, when I was ten years old, they put me on another type of an amphetamine with exactly the same results and I dieted i I, I went to weight watchers, I went to tops i don 't even know if they still have tops. I did lose weight with AIDS. those candies a y d s uh aids candies where you took it with hot water and you're supposed to lose weight with aids and uh if you're my age i'm 66 you might remember some of this stuff uh there were different potions and things but nothing really worked if it did i wouldn't be here this morning and if it worked for you you wouldn't be here either i'm assuming But what I want to remind myself of and what I want to talk about, because I'm going to to cut my story short. I do want to open this up for questions and answers, because that's really the topic of today, is New Year's Q&A. But what I want to remind myself of is the deprivation and the negativity of this disease. There is nothing quite as devastating as when you are under the gun of the food how negative everything becomes i couldn't dream the dreams of other kids i couldn't dream the dreams of going away to school and making something of my life because i became existentially convinced that because i was fat i really wasn't going to be successful anyway i hated myself i blamed my mentally ill mother for everything in my life Um, I I really had a very defeatist attitude. I was always getting in my own way. If there was a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, I found it. I didn't do well in school, didn't concentrate, didn't do homework, didn't do my long-term assignments till five minutes before they were due. I tested well, but didn't do very well. And I just got by by the skin of my teeth. And the saddest way words of tongue or pen are these few words it might have been. I sometimes lament over what I could have done or should have done. And I don't want to shoot all over myself, but I sometimes wonder what I could have done or should have done had I not had this disease. But we will never know. We will never really know what I could have or should have done because I do have this disease. And as I entered my teenage years and puberty and all that, I was already physically and I was already emotionally emasculated by this disease. This disease deformed me physically and it altered me mentally. And I wasn't to go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years old. I had so much fat on my body that I was, as I said, physically emasculated, and I was emotionally emasculated as well. Very, very serious thing. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about not The disease. I want to talk about the recovery. Yes, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds. Yes, by the time I was a sophomore in college, I was 500 pounds. Yes, doctors have been pronouncing me dead for my entire life. Uh, I remember when I was 17 years old, I went to the doctor because I broke my ankle, and my mother took me to the doctor. And this is in the days when the doctor would would put the cast on you. Now the nurses do it or something. They don't do that anymore. And I remember he had these little glasses, Dr. Bernstein, Edgewater Hospital in Chicago, and he screamed at my mother. He says, you know, Virginia, he isn't going to live to see thirty he's seventeen years old and he's over three hundred pounds and my mother started crying and i started getting upset and what did we do me and my mother on the way home we stopped for ice cream on the way excuse me on the way home because she and i were both compulsive overeaters and the only thing we really knew to do to quash the pain was to eat and we did and i was in my cast and i went and and uh, we ate ice cream together But what I want to remind myself of, so I'll say it here, is that as dark as the disease is, and I did get over 700 pounds, I did lie when the truth was better. I wrote a lot of bad checks. I lived in filth, and I lived in squalor. I didn't take care of myself. My hygiene was non-existent. I begged God every day for death. I begged God every day to take me out of this world. I didn't know how to live with the food. I knew I couldn't live without the food, and I certainly couldn't live with the food. I had no life at all, and for a very, very long time, I lived in hell because of this disease. I lived in shame. I couldn't pay my rent. I wrote bad checks. I ran into people that I had written bad checks to, and they would embarrass me, and they would excoriate me, scold me, yell at me, and it's just no way to live. It's just no way to live. But along came a couple of people who pushed their way past the filth in my apartment and the pizza boxes, and the dirt, and the Oreo cookie bags, and the Chips Ahoy bags, and the Kit Kat wrappers, and all the rest of the things that were in my filthy apartment. And they took me to a meeting on February 2nd, 1979, of Overeaters Anonymous. And they took me there, and I saw people that spoke my language. I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room, and I was 300 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. But these were people that spoke my language. And I wish I could tell you that I recovered right away, but I didn't. But it planted a seed and I stuck around for a couple of years. I left for a couple of years. I came back and I've never left. Even though I had relapses in there, I've never left. I've had 22 years of glorious abstinence and glorious release from this disease. If you are listening on the phone this morning, and you lack hope, but you're here because you don't know what else to do, or you're here because someone has been nagging you to dial into a vision for you. Maybe someone has given you the number, and as part of your New Year's resolution, you have tuned in to a Sunday special edition of A Vision for You. Let me say welcome to Overeaters Anonymous. Welcome home. There is hope here. Not only have I lost 500 pounds, but not only have I done that, that's the least of it. Not only am I still alive in spite of doctors pronouncing me dead for very, very long periods of my life, I didn't want to live, and now I do. I embrace each day, and every single day in the morning, I say, thank you, God, for this day of life. I say, thank you, God. This is the day that the, God, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I want to live. And most of, the men, most of the men and women that my father knew when I was a child came out of the concentration camps. Not all, but most. And they all told me a very similar thing. What they would say to me is, live until you die live until you die. And I thought live until you die meant that you ate all the candy that you could get in your mouth, that you ate all the pizza that you could get in your mouth, because that was living. Oh, no, 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 no. There is so much life beyond the food. There is so much life beyond the filth of this disease and the life is in the recovery the life is in service to god being of maximum service to god and the people about me living the life of a recovered person because that thrill that effect that i would get from the food i get now from the steps and i found out that food was never the problem as I was told over and over and over again, I found out that food was the solution to my problem, and that the problem was not the food, the problem was the buildup of human emotion, and that as these human emotions of guilt and shame and remorse and happiness and sadness would burst to the surface in uh, excuse me inside of me, let me just sorry about that, okay, as these feelings would burst to the surface inside of me, my brain knew that the chocolate, that the pizza, that the whatever would give me relief from the untenable, unrelenting pain of not eating, and that not eating brought about a pain that I could not stand, I could not tolerate, and eating became preferable. Lack of power was my dilemma. I had no power over these emotions. And now through the steps, I don't have the power, but I can tap into a power much, much greater than myself. And in that power comes the neutrality over the food that I had been looking for my entire life. And where I found it is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. On page 45 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says simply that the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And if that's the main object of this book, it better be the main object of my life. It better be the main object of my life. And when it becomes the main object of my life, I live a life that is very, very wonderful. Yes, there are things about my life that I wish were different. Yes, I I wish I could go back with what I know now and change things, but I can't. And to some degree or another, depending on the situation, I still pay consequences for the Kentucky Friday chicken that I ate in the 1960s. To one degree or another, I still have these consequences, but I have a life that's worth living today. I have a life that includes people, people who love me and people who let me love them back. I have a life that includes purpose today. My life includes purpose because what I'm really here for What I'm really here for is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. And in being of maximum service to God and the people about me, then I don't have to think about myself so much. And in getting a respite from thinking about myself, I can think about you, and in thinking about you, my life is much, much better. A self-obsessed life for me Leads right to the food. I have a life of service. And I like myself today because I do self-esteemable activities like service to OA. And so in making amends to myself in this way, I have had three ultimate results. I have, through the steps, gotten right with God. Excuse me. I have gotten right with myself and right with my fellow humanists and I'm happy in my release from the food. And on the bottom of page 14, it lets me know something, that because I have a progressive disease, my recovery must be progressive as well. My recovery must be progressive means I have to do more and more and more as time goes on and what i see so much of in myself and others is we settle into a level of service that doesn't change and eventually the disease will catch me from behind because if i do not increase my level of service the progressive na- excuse me the progressive nature of the illness will drive me back into the food. And so I must constantly do more and more and more. Bottom of page 14 of the big book, it says my friend, meaning Ebby, telling Bill, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative, imperative means important above all else, to work with others as he had worked with me Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed with us. It is just like that. And I'm reminded of something that's very, very important, that in the forward to the second edition on page XX, it describes 100 people who came into the program, and it says of 100 people that came into the program, 50%, 50 of them got sober at once. The other 50, 25 came in and got sober, and the remaining 25 showed improvement. That's by my reckoning, 75% of the people who came in and worked the program, the way it is described in the big book, recovered. I don't see 75% recovery today out there in OA land. I don't see anything close to 5% recovery today in OA land. I see something much less because we keep distracting ourselves with other things. And the more I get back to a pure message, a pure big book message, the more I get back to service and the more I get back to living in 10, 11, and 12 every day of my life and expanding and enlarging my spiritual life, the more chance I have of recovery. It is a glorious way of life. Welcome aboard if you're new. If you're not so new, welcome aboard anyway. Because here we are today and we've never been here before, have we? We've never been in today before. So if you're on that struggle bus, if you're here and you can still sort of remember your last binge because maybe it wasn't all that long ago, welcome home. There are people here who would dedicate themselves to helping you. All you need to do is meet them halfway. This is the renaissance of OA vision. I believe it with all my heart. I say it. I get rocks thrown at me for saying it, but I'm going to say it again. I believe that the renaissance of OA is through a vision for you. The numbers in OA keep going down, but the numbers in vision keep going up. What's the difference? Is it the personalities? No, hardly. It's the adherence to a big book recovery. It's the adherence to a pure message. There is recovery. And there is recovery here and there's recovery for you. No matter who you are, whether you're listening to this on a podcast, whether you're listening to this as I'm saying it, we are recovering, some of us, from a hopeless state of mind and body And we're not doing anything that requires a great deal of intelligence. We're not doing anything that requires a great deal of effort. We're doing what it says in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous that was written for guys during the height of the Depression, some of whom had an education and most of whom did not. And if we can do it, you can do it too. Join us as we walk that broad highway. Let's trudge the road of happy destiny together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, and so that we can recover and so that you can maximize everything about you and your darkest pain, your darkest secret will become your greatest asset. And you can pass your pain and your hell to the next person. And in doing so, you will get these 12-step promises. I'm going to close by relating the 12-step promises on page 100. Both you and the, I won't close the whole thing. I'll close my part of the story. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. If that seems a little far-fetched to you, test God. Walk to God. He'll run to you. It works. Page 88. It works. It really does. All right, let's close this part of it, but before we take questions, I'm just going to remind you guys, there's two types of questions I don't want. No food questions. I don't know what you should be eating, and what I eat should not be of interest to you. And no math questions, for the love of God. I just got by algebra and geometry by the skin of my teeth. No math questions and no food questions, but other than that, Leah, will open it up. Thanks.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, Harlan, for sharing your miraculous story of transformation as a result of the 12 steps. As always, it's so awe-inspiring. Quite a message of hope and possibility. Thank you very much. The SHARE ID for today's presentation, 16,122. That's 16122. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording. And we will now transition to question and answers. You can pose a question. Please give me Naomi your name. B. <laughs> yes. Please give me your name, including the L- first L- letter. Loretta Philly. H. Melissa. Na- Naomi B. Philadelphia. I, I hear you, Naomi B. Loretta H. <laughs> L- <laughs> L- Larry. Katie
2: L- Larry
3: Sorry, Larry. Katie G. That's okay,
0: Katie.
3: <laughs> <Jenny
0: A. laughs> I'm sorry, I have a math question. Hey. Hold on, Larry. Okay, I got. Thus far, I have Naomi B, Loretta H, Melissa C, Larry K, Katie G. Who did I not hear? Christina J. J. Terry. Karen G. Christina J. Jen A. Christina Christina J. Jen A. Simone J. Simone J. Karen G. Karen G. Okay, that's the list. Let me go over it again. Naomi B., Loretta H., Melissa C., Larry K., Katie G., Terry K., Christina J., Jen A., Simone J., Karen G. Was that everybody? Okay, let's say yes. Everybody please mute except for Naomi B
4: okay can you hear me all
3: right i hear you uh harlan oh my gosh oh my gosh you had me in tears but i want to ask you first of all you know i love you to pieces okay my first question to you is when you when you attended that first oa meeting what was
0: your reaction to that because i'm sure it was a different world that you were used to what was your first reaction and um what yeah? What was your first reaction when
1: you first attended that first OA um, meeting? Okay. I first attended that meeting on February the 2nd, 1979, and I would say that my reaction for about the first 25 meetings was exactly the same. I was going to the meeting because people that I owed a lot of money to were pressuring me to go. Thank God. And my first reaction was of extreme jealousy and hatred. I saw Lincoln Continentals and Cadillacs in the parking lot. This was the North Shore of Chicago. This was Skokie, Illinois, Evanston, Illinois, that area there. And these people were dripping with money. And they were in their 50s and 60s like I am now. But when I was 24 years old, they seemed ancient to me mostly they were women. There was me and there was one other man there. There was one other man. Uh, his name was Art. I think he's dead now. And there was a couple of other guys, a couple of other men that would come in and out. But it was mostly women, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But with what I saw was... Normal-looking bodies, but of course they look normal. I was, at that time, five, 600 pounds, whatever, and that wasn't as heavy as I was going to get. But I thought to myself, if I had a Cadillac, if I had a Lincoln Continental, if I had a house here in Skokie, I wouldn't compulsively overeat anyway. And that's what I was really saying to myself. That's what I was really thinking I didn't really understand anything about the disease. I didn't understand the allergy of the body or the twist of the mind. But I looked at them with contempt. But no matter how much contempt I showed them, they showed me nothing but love. They showed me nothing but love. And they Paid my way to go because I was penniless at that time. They paid my way to go to a Bill Bluestein retreat. They paid my way to go to a Fred Schneider retreat. If you don't know who these guys are, Bill Bluestein was out of L.A. and he was like a big guru at the time. And Fred Schneider started the HOW program. All of your HOW programs, H-O-W, Honesty, Open-Mindedness, Willingness, all of your HOW programs came from Fred. He was a school teacher in Brooklyn, New York, and he believed that what he, people were not learning the program. And so what he did is he did what teachers do. He developed a curriculum, and I met him, and I met Bill, and they showed me nothing but love. And to this day, it's hard sometimes for me to take love in, but they just kept loving me and loving me and loving me, and it made a huge difference. I realized, even though I left and came back, I had a home here. I had a home in OA, but my first reaction was hostility,
5: plain
1: hostility toward these people. How could they possibly understand? How could they possibly know? But they did know and they did understand. I hope that answers it. Thanks, uh thanks Naomi.
0: Yes, thanks Naomi B. Loretta H, star one unmute. Good morning Leia and good morning Harlan. Thank you, thank you for your service. And Harlan Thank you every day for averting death and misery for me and all of us on this line. My question is, what is your daily practice like? Um, I Like you said, the disease is progressive. Uh, and how has it changed from when you began to today, which is the most important day, of everyone's life so with that that's my question and thank you very much
1: thank you Loretta I I get up in the morning and before I even do anything the, the only thing that will interfere with that is my bladder but after I do that I will do step 11 Step 11 is the very first thing I do every day, and I do pages 86 to 88 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous from the point where it says, upon awakening to the end of that chapter, and I do the St. Francis prayer. If it was good enough for Bill Wilson, it's good enough for me. I do acceptance. I do some other prayers. I do some other meditations, and then I'm ready to start my day. I come downstairs, and I listen to to the first half hour or so of a vision for you. And then I stick the earphones in my ears and I don't miss. I listen to all two hours in the morning of uh, vision. But while I'm doing that, I'm on my walk. I walk three miles a day, six days a week. And while I'm doing that, if I can, I'll answer a question on the second meeting or I'll share on the first meeting, whatever, you know, depending, or I'll just listen for the day and that's fine too. Um, and throughout the day, I try to do as much service as I possibly can. I get a lot of phone calls. I make phone calls. Ten steps. You know, step ten is is paramount to my day, and that starts taking place as soon as I get as soon as I get angry, or as soon as I get scared. You know, uh, the step tens start. So uh, ten, eleven, and twelve. Ten, we continue. Eleven, we improve, and in twelve, we practice. So it's continue, improve, and practice, and. And at the end of the day, step 11 kind of brackets the day. Step 11, first thing. Step 11, last thing. And that's my day. Thanks, Loretta. I hope that answers it. Thank you. Now, if Larry begins his question with a train leaves Pittsburgh going 60 miles an hour, (laughs) I'm not taking his question. I'm going to take care of that. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. That's my job as moderator. Thank you. yes (laughs)
0: yes <laughs> okay no uh, we, actually we've got melissa c no, oh i'm <laughs>
1: sorry okay
0: i'm sorry okay. hi harlan oh my I'm... gosh
6: thank thank you so much thank you so much harlan and leah and yeah i really want to ask you a math question just to be obnoxious but i won't But i won't do that i'll keep it in check i want to ask you like a math and a food question just to, oh. just, just to do it but i won't do it um uh, thank you know thank you so much and um you know, you said something about, like, thinking about, like, what could have been for a moment. And I, I just want to say, like, I think about it in the opposite. I think, like, in horror, what might have been for me had I not really, had I not heard your voice, Leia's voice, you know, over seven years ago. I feel like, for me, it was one of those life-changing moments um, because I heard you speak in a way and her speak in a way I had never heard before. And I said, I'll do I'll do whatever they're doing. So... I just want to say that, but, um, I, you know, when you talk about that, like, what could have been, and what would you say to your younger self, and I feel like I ask you this question whenever I get the chance. That's okay. Um, because I have young people in my world, and I know, I'm pretty certain I'm seeing this disease, and I and I feel like there was nothing my parents could have done differently to stop the train, and I just think, what, what would you have said to your younger
1: self? What would be the kindest, um, but... I know what I would have said. Thanks, Melissa. I know what I would have said, and I know that you teach, and I know that you run into these kids who are dying, and the kids. I think, what do you teach? Like fifth grade or something like that? Sixth grade. What grade do you teach? She teaches second grade. Home. Second grade, okay. Even in second
6: grade, sorry, I, I muted, but yes, okay. Yeah, I teach second grade, but I second grade, okay. my Own. I also have my own children.
7: Okay. <laughs>
6: um, <laughs> here's
1: here's the problem. It's very hard to reach kids of any age because I think the prerequisite for any recovery is to be battered by the pain of this disease, but to answer your question, what would I say to Harlan Grabowski of 1965 when I was 11 years old? What would I say to, to, to me at age 10 or whatever? I would say, stop listening to the negative voices in your head and do what you know is right Do what you know is right. You're not going to have a good life with a defeatist attitude. But I don't know how I would have listened. I don't know what I would have heard because many, many people, many, many people told me those very words and I continued to eat. So I think that the only thing that we can do, and I I never get away from this because I live across the street from a very large high school, and I see some of the kids coming in and going out, and some of them are wonderful, and they've got their cheerleader uniforms on, or they've got their football uniforms on, or whatever they have. And some of the kids are morbidly obese already by the time they're 15 and 16 years old, and my heart is breaking for them. It's breaking for them because I know that this is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better on its own. So there's three things we can do for that still sick, suffering child and that still sick, suffering child that's had more than 30, 40 birthdays, 50 birthdays. No matter how many birthdays a person has, Melissa, I think there's only three things we can do for that person. Recover, recover, and recover. We can recover, recover, and recover. I wish there was some magic expression that we could use on children to get them to listen to this. I don't know that there is. If there is, I haven't found it. It takes an incredible amount of pain to get into recovery. It takes an incredible amount of being degraded beyond imagination. Loneliness beyond solitary confinement. Alienation beyond interplanetary travel. It takes disgrace. It takes being dragged through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And I don't see anybody recovering that hasn't been there. In the book, The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, he describes people who found God. And every one of those people have survived calamity and catastrophe. And in the back of the Big Book of AA and in the Brown Book of OA, every one of those people has survived catastrophe. So the only thing I would say to a person, be they 6 or 60, is there are people who have this exact disease, and I would describe for them what the disease is, and they are recovering and they're doing this, It's going to take what it's going to take until those people come around. I wish there was something more we could do for these kids, but I don't know of any. I really don't. I wish there was because my heart breaks. My heart breaks for the children. Be they 8 or 80, my heart breaks for the people that are suffering. I hope that answers it, Melissa. I I wish I had a better answer for you. I don't. I wish I had something else. I don't. But thanks for the question. What a
5: meeting for kids.
1: We've had them. We've done many, many meetings for young people. We had it at Swedish Covenant in, in Chicago. We would get kids that their mothers would bring them, and the mothers would sit in the back, and the kids would sit in these young people meetings, and they'd be squirming around. They couldn't relate to anything. OA has a workbook and a like a cartoon book of the steps. Uh, if you've never seen it, you can go to OA.org. You can probably order it. Uh, OA has... Books for children, and they just don't relate. They just do. They just did not relate. We've done it. Uh, we did it in Chicago. We have a young people's conference here in Phoenix in March. It's a young person's retreat, and it's going to be, excuse me, on Zoom. Hopefully, if we reach one person. You know, that'll be good. Maybe we'll reach their parents. Maybe it's maybe their parent, you know, will hear something that will help them too. But we have reached abysmal failure. We have done the meetings for young people, and it was just an abysmal failure. Just an abysmal failure. So we can keep trying, though. They can't put us in jail for trying because I guess trying is better than not doing anything. And with that, I don't know the answer. I don't know how to amplify that anymore. Okay? sorry
6: Thank, thanks can I, can I, i'm i sorry can i just ask one other small sure. part of the question okay sure. so if you saw somebody who looks like they're eating compulsively and they happen to be your child <laughs> okay. would you say anything about the food at
1: all or say not a word like part of me wonders like um well you, you do? know
2: I, I think
1: that when they're your child you're going to say it um uh, my daughter Unfortunately, she doesn't speak to me anymore. She hasn't spoken to me in years. That's my fear. I don't want to do that. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I I would say 90 to 95% of the fights that my daughter had with with her mother, with my ex-wife, were about food and eating. My daughter is me. My daughter is me. And she is a compulsive overeater. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, She's not as uh, low a basement as me. But, you know, um, the only thing I would say that might be effective is at times, not haranguing them constantly because that won't work. You know, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. When the time is right, you may want to say to that person, I used to eat like that and I used to think that I couldn't live another five minutes without that pizza and I found that when I do my program, not only do I live without it, but I live better without it and I've suffered a lot of pain too. Treat them as you would treat a new Excuse me, a newcomer, and relate your story to them, and maybe just maybe it will will happen. Uh, chances are good though they'll need to hear the message from a stranger, not their mother. <laughs> chances are better than average they'll need to hear you could say the same thing to a child if it's your child, you could say, don't cross the street, you know." without looking, and then some other person says the same thing to them, and all of a sudden it becomes the gospel. You've been saying it to them for years. They didn't hear it. And all of a sudden, it's it's sort of like getting the, the, you know, the jar open. You know, you bang it, you do it, and you give it to somebody else, and they just pop it right off. And it just seems that if mommy is saying it or daddy is saying it, it is automatically discounted as invalid. Somebody else says it, oh, now I get it, now I get it. But I think that if you pick your moments, Melissa, and talk to them when they're down, that you used to eat that way, that you've suffered that pain, and give them a little identification. I don't see where that could hurt if you pick your spots carefully. I don't see where that could hurt.
8: So that's my answer.
0: Thanks, Melissa. Okay. Larry K. Turn. Okay. Larry. Star one, not mute, Larry.
2: Oh, thanks, Leah. Thanks, Leah. Sir, thanks, Arlen. Um Just indulge me for f- five seconds here. I'll get right to my question. You, you, you two, I'm emotional. You, you two are have been extraordinary um, models for, for my recovery, and I'm just grateful to you two. And I, I need to say that this morning, I'm working a, a four-step. Okay, now now to the question. Harlan, I'm trying to, to determine the integers for x, y, and z with the sum. Oh, come on now! No, okay, all right. I had, I could I have a question. I have a question. All right. I couldn't resist. Okay. So my okay. question is this: it's, It says, um, as we all know, many of us know that that willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery. Uh, but these are indispensable, and, and so forth, right? And um, Harlan, would you would you speak to honesty? Um, would you just speak to honesty? Because, um, and and the reason I say that, okay, I just want to add just a little bit more to the question because as addicts, like for me as an addict, it's hard for us to stay honest, you know, because the lifestyle I was living in addiction was not conducive to, uh, honesty and denial, you know, stands in our way and we're human. Um, so with, with that little bit of little caveat there, would you, would you speak to honesty as being the, Indispensable. Thanks so much for right.
1: And I'll try to solve for X. But the bottom yeah, yeah. line is, is that we have an illness. And on page 30 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the first paragraph in the chapter entitled More About Alcoholism, it says here, most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Now let's take that sentence and just stop right there. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real compulsive overeaters, meaning we believed that somehow, someday, after enough time passed or somehow, someday, when this happened or that stopped happening, when Fred stopped drinking or Mike went to college or Joe got a job or Mary did somersaults, that somehow we wouldn't eat that way. And if we are compulsive overeaters, what does that mean? It means we have an allergy of the body, which makes it impossible to stop once we've started. And a twist of the mind coupled with a mental blank spot, which makes it impossible to stay stopped, And it says, no person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion, a delusion and an illusion, an obsession. An obsession is a thought which pushes out all thought to the contrary. An illusion is something that looks real, but it's not. Is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. And on page 58, it talks about honesty three times in the first paragraph. Honesty about what? Yes, the easy answer is everything. And yes, we must be honest about everything. No doubt about that. But the most important thing I need to be honest about in today is I am a compulsive overeater. I am different from my fellows. I need this program above everything and anything else. I must be honest that I cannot stop eating once I've started and I cannot keep from eating now that I want to. I lack power that's my dilemma and without the power of a, a that's greater than myself I will not recover so where honesty begins and where honesty ends for me is in this thought I i am a compulsive overeater. Why do we say that every time we identify themselves? Hi, I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. Do I say that so you'll know I'm a compulsive overeater? No, you don't need to know. I say it so I will hear myself saying it. And that's where that starts. That's why we do that. So I will continue to hear myself say, I'm Harlan. I'm a compulsive overeater. And maybe I'll remember because I have a mental blank spot that prevents me from remembering that. But I have to remember that I am a compulsive overeater. I'm like you, but different from other people. And I need the steps. And that's the honesty that I'm looking for. Yes, I must be honest in all things. Cash register honest and all that other stuff. Yes. But I must be honest about my condition and the big book will refer to that umpteen times. Thanks for the question, Larry. I hope that answers it.
0: Thank you, Larry. Kay, Katie G., your turn.
3: Hey, Leah, Melanie, Larry, Harlan. I really owe you guys my life. Um, Thank you. Um, Harlan, I have like a million questions, so I'm just going to ask a really fast two-part question, um, and I'll say it all and then be quiet. How is it that you... Who've been? I don't know. I think you said 600 pounds. I don't even remember Harlan. Seven. Okay. How is it that you 700, me 120 pounds, which is anorexic for me, and then 228 pounds, Harlan? How can we share this room? Like, why does that make sense? Why, when you talk, do you speak to my heart? When externally things are so different and then part B I was hoping you could use the doctor's opinion to help me understand a concept that sometimes you hear at other OA meetings and sometimes at ours about sort of abstinence, about um, kind of abstinence sloppy abstinence things like that I've heard you speak and I'd love to hear you comment on both those if it's possible
1: okay well the reason that we can identify is because we have the same pain and we have the same disease we have a life that includes countless vain attempts to prove we could eat like other people we have a life that includes countless countless situations that are exactly the same we ate when we didn't want to we ate food against our will and when you tell this to normal people they look at you like you're from the zoo What do you mean you ate against your will? I did not want to be eating like I was. It says in the doctor's opinion, although we admit it is injurious, we could not tell the true from the false. I remember eating many, many times with tears running down my face. I have eaten massive quantities of food that I knew was garbage. Garbage! And I had tears running down my face. And I would have given anything not to eat the food, but I couldn't shove it in my mouth fast enough. Food that was frozen, food that was spoiled, food that other people were throwing away and not eating, I was ready to eat it. Who does that but us? Who relates to that but us? Who understands that but us? So you don't have to be 700 pounds, and you don't have to be dangerously anorexic. You don't have to be bulimic. You don't have to be any of those things. You just have to be a compulsive overeater to understand what this pain is. And it is through that identification. Now, I want to call your attention to page X almost at the bottom of the page. This is going to be the third reference to abstinence that Dr. Silkworth is going to give us. Okay, he is going to give us two others, but I'm going to use this one because it's going to use the words of a very famous podcast by Ruth. And since it has the the words in it, I'm going to use it. It says, this is the sentence prior to the last paragraph on the page XXX. It says, The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Entire abstinence. He doesn't use the word mostly abstinent. He doesn't use the word abstinent. He gives it a, an adjective, entire abstinence. Now on page x. X V I I. XXVII. Very bottom of the page. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving, top of the next page, for liquor, for this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. He's going to tell us again put the food down <laughs> excuse me, down. In AA, they don't say Have a couple of beers each week, but other than that, you have to stay sober. No, you're either drinking or you're not. You're either eating or you're not. You're either consuming your binge foods or you're not. If you're eating a little here and you're eating a little there, you're not abstinent. You either are or you're not. You're either pregnant or you're not. The light is on or the light is off. That's... The sentence in the book that says to me, I must be entirely abstinent. And he doesn't mince any words. So anything other than entire abstinence is me kidding myself. I'm fooling myself. It's not abstinence. You either are or you're not. You're either doing this or you're not. Is that black and white thinking? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. It is. But that's the way it goes. And that's the that's the reality of the situation. I hope that answers it, Katie. Thanks, Katie G. Terry
0: Kay, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi. This is Terry Kay. Thank you, Leah and Harlan, for your service. Um I I'm trying to think about the reference in the big book. I believe in Bill's story somewhere, um, there's a reference that Either he or someone worked with a fellow uh, a number of times. And then um, there's that reference in the big book that, you know, talks about when someone's not ready, you know, let them go. Um, So I'm kind of struggling working with a sponsee who's relapsed a second time with me trying to, you know, make that, how I make that decision of um, to continue to work with this fellow or to let them go.
1: What
0: what kind of. um, Let's go to
1: page 96 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Page 96, the very first paragraph, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once, search out another alcoholic and try again. It doesn't say keep hounding the same alcoholic, it says what? Search out another alcoholic and try again. That doesn't mean that if a person struggles a little bit, I automatically, you know, cast them aside but if they're continuing to binge and continuing to go to the food I'm not doing them any favors and I'm not doing any favors for myself at some point I have to say to myself if their recovery is more important to me than it is to them then I've got some Al-Anon issues I've got some Al-Anon issues here So let's continue. It says, you are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. They may be calling you, Terry. They may be talking to you, Terry, but are they putting the food down? Are they doing what is required to recover? If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. <clears throat> Excuse me. He he's talking about himself here because Bob was a far better sponsor than Bill. 70% of the 100 recoveries came out of Akron, not New York. Most of the early recoveries came out of Akron. Why? The sponsorship was better. Bill wanted to drag these guys off the bar stool and drag them to a meeting and sober them up, and most of them didn't want to get sober. Most of them didn't want to go. But he he had lots of enthusiasm. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. So if this person is continuing to eat, you're not doing them any favors. They need to hear a different voice. They need to hear a different voice. And um, therein lies the question, therein lies the answer. Do the best you can. I will go with somebody, you know, through one little slip here, one little, you know, relapse here. But if it continues, I tell them, you need to hear a different voice. I'm just not, I'm not the one that's getting through to you. I'm not doing you any favors. I'm not doing me any favors either. I hope that helps. Thanks, Terry, for your question.
0: Thank you. Christina J
5: morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leia. Thank you both for your service. Um, Harlan, just wow. Uh, just uh, your life as it was, and the pain and the suffering, God has turned that around full circle. And wow, what a service you give now. Such a blessing. Um, must be just enlarge your heart so much. At any rate, let me get to the question. And the last couple of questions sort of led into this. In the rooms and in phone conversations, I have heard the word slip. And I've heard recently, I was surprised, I heard the word lapse. Oh, it's just a lapse. Oh, it's just a slip. And to me, these words downplay the seriousness of what actually happens when a person picks up the food again. So my question in is, these slips and so-called lapses, are these relapses, full-blown relapses? I mean, I don't mean for days and days, but I did all this lapsing and slipping, but I never called it that. To me, it was relapsing. And um, I did it for a day, half day, whatever. And then I'd get back, which is a lie of the disease. Um, is this, are these relapses, these slips and lapses? And is this a step one issue? Thank you for your answer. It's Ryan. a step one issue for sure. And
1: I don't believe in a slip. I don't believe, I believe you're either in recovery or you're not. Um, there are times, I, I remember one time I ordered something. I was actually in Los Angeles at the OA birthday which is coming up here in a couple of weeks. I hope that you'll all register for that and attend that because it's a wonderful, marvelous content, uh, convention. It's going to be on zoom this year. I wish it was in person, but it's going to be on zoom. I was in Los Angeles, California. And, um, I ordered my thing and I ordered it. No, this, no, that, no, this, no, that. And it came and it had like a piece of something in there that when it went into my mouth I put a napkin up and I spit it out because I knew this was not this was not you know what I ordered and it was in my mouth um that to me is a slip because it was a mistake not my mistake but that's a slip but when you're eating food that you know damn well is not on your food plan when you're eating food at times you know damn well you shouldn't be eating that's relapse that's relapse that's a step one issue and you know I hate to expand on the virtue of the tools rather than the steps here but sometimes you just gotta pick up the phone and sometimes you just gotta use the the tools it's easier to recover now than it's ever been we're powerless but we're not helpless you can listen to a meeting 24 7 365 you have a phone, a cell phone, where you can dial free long distance. I don't care what time zone you're in. You can call people that are up. You know, I live in Arizona. If I have to, I'll call somebody that lives in Ireland, in Dublin, Ireland. I'll call someone that lives in Rimini, Italy. I'll call someone that lives in England or Scotland. There are, there's a phone list with thousands of names on it, go to go to OA, go to a info, a and on a type in your member name, type in your passcode, go to the phone list. There are numbers and names in there, not one or two. I'm talking hundreds of them, and people are in different time zones. Pick up the phone. At a vision for you, the number four you dot info, and pick up the phone and call one of them and say, "I really want to eat such and such, and they will talk to you. they will help you, they will get you through it. But when I stand there and try to fight this desire to eat this by myself. I'm O for lifetime. I cannot fight that. I cannot fight that. So, Christina, I would say it's a relapse, and it's a relapse that's easily preventable. If you want to, go to avision 4 Type in your username. Type in your pass, password. Go to the phone list. You can look up people. It'll say where they're from. I don't care what time zone you're in, there's going to be somebody that's awake. And on that a vision for you, dot info, you will find a vast variety of help available to you. You can't find anybody, which I doubt if you really try, you will. Plug a podcast in, listen to that, see if it doesn't make a difference. It will make a difference, it will. So I think it's relapse, so I hope that answers it. Thanks, Christina. Thank you. Simone J, your
0: turn, star one to unmute.
4: Hi, this is Simone J, compulsive overeater. Um, Thank you so much. Um, Harlan, some of my questions have already been answered, but um, I just wanted to to say, um, I thank you so much for always saying, recover, recover, recover. And the advice that you gave me was to work through the steps very, very quickly. And I recovered in less than a month um, after years of the recovery relapse roller coaster. And now I'm sponsoring, and I didn't realize, you know. Um, so, one of the things also that um, I heard you say um, was about your step 11 practice. And I just wanted to ask you, as a matter of interest, um, you know, um, sort of um, how long do you devote to your morning Step 11 stuff and your evening Step 11 stuff?
1: My evening and then... is, is just the paragraph on page uh, 86. It's just uh... – when we retire at night it's it's on page 86 it doesn't take very long there's just several questions in that paragraph that i answer and it's just there it says when we retire at night now my morning practice takes about 20 30 minutes and you don't share your evening with anybody I don't share I it I used to I used to i I kind of got out of that habit uh you can if you feel that it will help you do it you can you can email it out to somebody lots of people do that I used to do it um, but if you feel that you want to share that with somebody you go right ahead it's not wrong there's no wrong way you know as long as you're doing it it's not wrong it's fine
4: Okay, and around about how many step tens do you reckon you do a day these days?
1: Um, Sorry, I'm not the Well, Larry's <laughs> asking me math questions. Probably eight or nine, but when he's not asking me math questions, probably four or five, depending. It just okay. depends on how many math questions Larry's asking me. Okay, But no, thanks. it just it depends what's going on that day. But there's always something, you know. To live is. Uh, I'll teach you a Yiddish expression. Uh, the Yiddish expression is azoygetis. What does azoygetis yeah. mean? It's always something. No yeah. matter what the situation, no matter what the situation, there's always going to be something that's going to aggravate me. I sit on a chair here that's like one of these office chairs. I must have spent $400 for this fakakta chair. And I don't think I had this chair more than a year and it started sinking, you know, the way the chairs sink when you get the office chairs, they sink. So I, I went to the YouTube, I went to the thing, and it shows you how to fix it. And I, I fixed it, I thought I fixed it, and then it broke again, I, I don't know. So here, in the middle of everything, this chair is, is like making me mushuga. Or it could be, I, about a month ago, I started noticing... I have termites. I had to call the exterminator and blah, blah, blah. It's all good. It's all good. But until they came and until they did it, it was making me crazy. A zoigatus. Chris Simone is always going to be something that's going to drive me into, it, into several ten steps here. You know, and, and there's that's just the way it is no matter how evolved my recovery gets i will never rise above the level of a human being and as a human being i'm going to get aggravated i'm going to get mad i'm going to get scared i'm going to need to do step 10 i hope that answers it
0: thank you simone Simone. J. karen g star one time mute for your question okay
3: Thank you, Leah, and thank you very much, Harlan. and also, thanks to everyone who asked a question or spoke on the line. You've all been so helpful to me in my recovery. um a compulsive eater from New Jersey, just starting my second year in the program, so still pretty new. And um, my question for you is this is, how do you work with people who, um, let's say, struggle to identify any specific uh, food or substance that um, would be considered allergic or trigger or causing a craving and instead um, suffer for, let's say, uh, just volume eating or, in the case of anorexic, under-eating and anorexia. Can you maybe speak to that where there's no specific ingredient that a person can identify?
1: All right. What What I ask them to do is, as we're talking, are there any foods in your mind right now that you do not want me to talk about? Any foods right now that you'd be willing to give up your firstborn but not this food? Are there any foods that you want to negotiate about? Any foods that you want to negotiate about or amounts of food? So here's what I say you need the help usually of a professional nutritionist. Some of the nutritionists understand our disease, some of them do not. But they will be able to give you guides as to amounts of food, weights and measures of food. I weigh and measure my starch. I weigh and measure my protein. I do not weigh and measure an apple. I don't weigh and measure an orange. That I'm not going to do. I, I don't do that. Uh, it's one orange, or it's one apple, or it's whatever it is, that's fine. But the bottom line is some people have to do that. It's not wrong. I'm not disparaging that. For me, it's, it's not necessary. Okay. But you, I, need, I need guidelines. I need specific answers. I can't just say I'm going to eat oatmeal for breakfast. How much oatmeal? I'm going to eat blueberries. How many? How much blueberries? How much eggs? How much this? So I need weights. I need measures. I need guidelines. I need parameters. And to get that, I often need outside help of of a nutritionist. But if there's any food that you absolutely want to negotiate with me, it's gone. Any food that you want to argue about, it's gone. Therein lies the question. Therein lies the answer. So if you're digging your heels in that you don't want to give this food up, we better eliminate it right now we better eliminate it right now. I also insist, and this is my personal choice, this is how I do things, this is what I do, you don't have to follow that guideline. I insist that all people refrain from alcoholic consumption unless it's religious-based, all alcoholic consumption and all consumption of marijuana or illegal drugs. If it's something that's prescribed by a doctor, Huh. God bless you, no problem. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. But I insist that people remain clean and sober during their life in recovery. I, 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 that's what I insist. I hope that answers it. Thanks, Karen.
0: Thank you, Karen G. Okay, we have time for perhaps four more questions.
9: Vivian, did answer There'd
0: There'd
8: from Fort Worth. And Brenda A. Lisa B. Nosa J. Merge. C. Okay. This
0: is who I have. Vivian, Penny C., Lisa J., and Nosa J. Let's begin with Vivian, please.
8: Hi, thanks. Can I be heard?
0: Yep. yes go ahead with your question
6: okay. thank you Leah. thank you so much thank you so much Harlan. it was just wonderful um i i when i do 10 steps my question is um many times you know there's certain things that come up during the day uh you know like you were using examples and you know, one-time incidents but many times when i do 10 steps it's kind of like peeling the onion of repeated trauma that's happened to me not that i'm living in the past but it triggers that for me I find that sometimes a ten step, I need to do a few ten steps on the same thing, or it repeats itself. If I'm I happen to be going through something that I'm experiencing, maybe in the course of a couple of days, it's, is that something that you experience too? And if you do, how do you? How do I would you do say that? that
1: if it's coming up that often and it's an it's an old trauma, I would fourth step it. I wouldn't. I don't necessarily recommend a step ten on that. I would fourth step it. Uh, I've had to do a lot of fourth steps. Uh, And don't be afraid. It says right on page 84, continue to take personal inventory. So if you need to, you do a a full-blown four-step on something like that. If it keeps coming up would be my strong advice to you. And things will come up. You know, now that I'm clear, now that I'm clear of the food, I can remember things and things hit me in a way. They didn't hit me 20 years ago. They didn't hit me 30 years ago. It just wasn't something I was conscious of. Now all of a sudden I'm free of the food and, oh, yeah, I owe that person an amends. Oh, yeah, I wasn't quite the innocent angel in that scenario that I thought I was. Oh, I better visit that. And that's something that's very important. But I would recommend if if the fourth step isn't getting it done, do a i mean if the tenth step isn't getting it done, don't be afraid to do a fourth step. I hope that answers it, Vivian. Thank you. Vivian. Vivian. Penny C? Penny. Can't hear you, Penny. Star
8: Wars. Uh, oh hi hi Leia, thank you so much. I'm a recovered compulsive over eater, thank you God. Um, in Red Sox Nation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Holland, Holland, I heard you uh, and I was glad to hear you quote the uh, purpose of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh yet I I've been listening, most of the meetings I'm going to are big book meetings and even on people who are speakers at big book meetings, i I've, I've been disappointed to hear two within the last week say the most important uh, thing in their life is abstinence. Would you, how would you respond to that?
1: I would say that abstinence is a prerequisite, but abstinence better not be the most important thing in my life without exception because the most important thing in my life without exception is to find a power greater than myself which will solve my problem. In order to do that, I have to be abstinent. But abstinence for me cannot be the ultimate goal. I'm not here to be on a diet. I'm not here to to be on a diet. I must be abstinent in exactly the same way that an alcoholic must stay sober. But let's go back again to something that I mentioned here, and that will bear me out. If you want to, Penny, or whoever, if you're following at home, let's go to the bottom of page 14, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly, was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me? Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic! For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Abstinence alone will not produce the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps that I am seeking. I'm going to say that again because it's vital to my survival. And if I'm needing to hear it again. Maybe somebody else does too. Abstinence alone in and of itself will not produce the spiritual awakening that I seek so that I can live happily in my release from this disease temporarily. It will not produce a spiritual awakening. If it did, then people at Weight Watchers and Tops and Nutrisystem and all the rest of the pay and ways, they would have spiritual awakenings, and they don't. Some of them might, I don't know. But abstinence alone will not produce that spiritual awakening. It only comes through the working of the steps. And so abstinence is not the most important thing in my life without exception. It is the prerequisite, yes, but it is not the ultimate goal. And I hope that more speakers will stop saying that because it is misleading and it is false. If you are going to live in recovery, abstinence alone will not give you recovery. It's not going to happen. I hope that answers it, Penny. Thanks. Thanks for the question, and I love you back. Thank you, Penny C. Lisa B., Lisa
0: your turn. B. Star one, turn mute. Lisa, star one, we can't hear you.
1: Can you hear me? Now yes. Now we can. Yes, now we can. Oh,
9: I, didn't know, I didn't know that you heard me. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, thank you so much. I actually have, uh, I guess, sort of two questions if I can ask. The first one is, do you think that you can prevent and or cause... I have a three and a half year old, and I'm I'm abstinent, but doing everything I can. Of course, I cannot possibly give away what I haven't got yet. Um, prevent a child from becoming a compulsive overeater. No. Okay, okay. Um, you can't
1: cause it. You can't create it. You can't cure it. You can't nothing. You are a human being. You are his mother. You're a powerful human being, and you're 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 a major player, and you always will be a major player. But absolutely not. Absolutely not. If you could, that would be some one thing, but you cannot. This disease cannot be caused or cured or anything by another human being. Nope, you cannot. Okay.
9: Thank you. Uh, the the other question I had is um you mentioned in your in your um talk that there are some things that you can never I'm I'm paraphrasing it wrong, but some things you can't make right or some things you can't um I'm thinking of like through the eighth and ninth step. Um, you know, are there, there are things that you that can't be uh, reconciled or that can't be made okay? Can you talk about that a little bit? Do you mind?
1: When I was um, when I was thinking about how I was going to answer your question, the first thing that came through my mind was my mom. My mom was mentally ill. My mom had three distinct personalities. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic. She could be a three-year-old, two-year-old, or a pretty together person. You never knew what you were going to get or how long it was going to last. It was a source of embarrassment. It was a source of shame. It was a source of pain for me. And I treated her horribly. I was a real, real bad son to her. And I was overwhelmed with a lot because I had two parents to take care of from the time I was a kid. My dad was 54 when I was born. He was 72 when I graduated high school. And um, my mother was treated very horribly by both of us. Um, And I can never really repair that because she's been dead since I was 22. I came in here when I was 24. My mom died when I was 22. So there are some things, there are some wrongs we can never fully right. It says this in the big book, in the chapter, I believe, to wives. It talks about there are some wrongs we can never fully right. We would write, maybe it is in step nine, yeah. But we would write them if we could. But here's the way I make amends to my mother. I do the best I can to live as a person that she would be proud of every day. I feel that she's proud of me now. I feel that she's proud of me when I serve OA. I do the things that I know would make her happy and try to avoid the things I know would make her sad. But even if you can't right a wrong, you can make a living amends by altering your behavior with God's help so that this is never repeated again. There are some wrongs we can never fully right. Maybe the people we've harmed are dead. Maybe the people we have harmed cannot be found. Maybe for one reason or another, the harms that we've done other people cannot be visited because it would cause them yet more harm. That's why in the ninth step, it is vital in all steps, but in the ninth step, especially to work closely with a recovered sponsor, because sometimes we can avoid amends that need to be made, and sometimes we can make amends that that shouldn't be made, and that's why we need the objectivity of another person. But what we can do, and Lisa, this is important, is to live our lives in accordance with God's will so that this is never repeated again. We have enough shame and enough guilt to last a lifetime. We don't need to heap any more shame or guilt upon us ever again. We don't have to live that way. And when we don't live that way, we don't eat that way because we don't think that way. So I hope that answers your question um but it is something that you do need i need to work with a sponsor very closely on because if i go out there to make amends sometimes i'll cause more harm than i'm than i had originally intended and that's why it's important to get guidance but yes there are some wrongs we can never fully right we just do the best we can thanks lisa for your question
0: thank you lisa b our final question for the morning
8: comes from Nosa J. Nosa. Hi, Lynn, It's Nosa J, recover compulsive overeater. Um, I have been uh, very emotional. I found out uh, my mom has pa- stage four pancreatic cancer and she's dying and um thank you. Um my emotions are up and down <laughs> every day. <laughs> And I just don't know how to deal with it. Like, I know to stay close and and all of that, but it's still just up and down, up and down. And I, I try to just stay in the day because <sighs> I don't want to go back to eating. And, and it's not even, like, I don't think about, like, definitely my binge foods are just off the table. But, like, different things like sauces or have a, have some sauce with that meat or, you know, just stupid things. And it's like, what the heck? So I just would like some, uh, words, I guess.
1: Well, here's, here's what I'm, what I'm going to say. The best amends you could make to your mother, the best gift you could give your mother in the time that she has left is for her to know that you are in recovery. Even if she knows nothing about what recovery is, even if she knows nothing about recovery. If you are in recovery, she will see a difference within you. And what I need to do when I'm in these situations where my heart is breaking, my mother died before I got here, my dad died before I got here, but I have been rejected by women, I have been dumped by women. I have a daughter, she's very orthodox, she lives in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, crown Heights or Crown Point in Brooklyn. I don't know if it's Crown Heights or Crown Point. I think it's Crown Heights, Brooklyn that she lives. It's one or the other. It starts with a crown. She didn't invite me to her wedding. She thinks I'm the worst person God ever put on the face of the earth. I haven't spoken to her in years. She won't speak to me. I've done everything I can, and I continue to try to make amends to her. I didn't do anything to her, but okay, in her mind, I did. Whatever. Okay, fine she will not speak to me. I send her checks, she cashes the checks, but she doesn't she doesn't acknowledge it at all. I get out of myself. I get out of myself and serve other people and be of service because my initial temptation when I realize, "Oh, I wish I was married. I wish I had a girlfriend. I wish I wasn't alone. I wish I could have a life with my daughter." Those are things that are great to wish for. But in the meantime, I need to get out of myself and get out of poor me. I have to get out of poor Harlan. Life is going to go on. The dogs bark, but the wagon train continues. And that means I'm going to have to get out of myself. I'm going to have to be of service to other people. Let's take a gander at page 570 in the 4th edition. If you would please indulge me. Page 570. Okay, I'm going to read, listen to this. Dr. W. W. Bauer, I'm at the top of the page broadcasting under the auspices of the American Medical Association in 1946 over the NBC network said in part, Alcoholics Anonymous are no crusaders, not a temperance society. They know that they must never drink. They help others with similar problems. In this atmosphere, this is the part I want you to pay attention to, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself, learning to depend upon a higher power and absorb himself in his work with other alcoholics. He remains sober day by day. The days add up into weeks to weeks into months and years. The greatest gift you could give your mother, NOSA, in my opinion, in my opinion, is a recovered NOSA. So that she knows when she does go, and she will know, she will know, that you're going to live the best you can, that you're going to live until you die. Remember what those concentration camp people told me? Live until you die. And the best way for us to maximize our lives is to hold God's hand and let him guide us. I hope that answers it. I know that's not what we want to do when our hearts are breaking. When our hearts are breaking, I want to be indulgent upon myself. That's not going to get me what I want not even close. I must serve others. And I hope that answers it, Nosa. And I'm very sorry about your mom.
0: Thank you, Nosa, for the question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And of course, thank you, Harlan, for giving so much of yourself to all of us this morning and every day. Thank you. You truly are a blessing to our fellowship and to Overeaters Anonymous. And again, today's sheer ID, 16,122. That's 16122. Time to close. From page 164 in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little.